0: I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to The World Is Wrong Podcast. We're here to
1: tell you how the world is wrong. The world
0: is wrong about Even cowgirls get the blues. Welcome
1: to The World Is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I am one of your hosts, and my name is Rootin', Tootin', Shootin' Andras Jones,
0: and my name is Stupot Brian Connolly. You're not Stupot. You're a smart guy. <laughs> smart guy Brian Connolly.
1: Don't be yeah. Stupot, Brian. <laughs> yeah, we're here to talk about even cowgirls get the blues. From what year did this film come out?
0: 1993.
1: 1993. Okay. Well, yes, this is uh this is the adaptation of Tom Robbins' best-selling counterculture novel and uh, it's from Gus Van Sant. It stars Uma Thurman. It's a movie. We're going to talk about it. <laughs> Brian, you want to get yeah. you want you want to set up
0: the clip. Sure, yeah, uh, so this is, uh, this <laughs> we're just going to start with a clip of uh, of just Uma Thurman's character, Sissy Hankshaw, just giving a little speech about sort of her hitchhiking life.
1: There might be spoilers, yeah. there might be spoilers, yeah. there might be spoilers. Yeah.
0: Do you know in showbiz? I was a successful model once magazines? I was the Yoni Yum feminine hygiene do girl from 1965 to 1970. And then I got laid off. So now you're bumming around? Yep. Hitchhiking? Please don't think me immodest, but I'm really the best. You're the best. Yeah. Yeah, I am. When I was younger, I hitchhiked 127 hours without stopping. Crossed the continent twice in six days, cooled my thumbs in both oceans, and caught rides after midnight on unlighted highways. When I'm really moving, moving so freely, so clearly, so delicately, that even the sex maniacs and the cops can only blink and let me pass, then I embody the spirit
1: and the heart of hitchhiking. I have the rhythms of the universe inside me. I'm in a state of grace.
0: We're back. We're back. Uh, yes. Brian, so, this film. It's your well, choice. This film. You, cho- you chose My it. choice. I chose it. I'm sorry. Um, let's just... a uh, Brief plot. Uh, it's hard because as with all counterculture adaptations, the plots are kind of messy. There's a lot of characters, a lot crammed into these movies that work maybe better in a book in some people's opinion. And it's a lot to take in a movie. But I'm going to give you the best plot description that I can to kind of set up for anyone who doesn't know anything about this. So, main character, Sissy Hankshaw, played by Uma Thurman. A woman born with unnecessarily large thumbs. Freakishly large thumbs. But she uses these thumbs to her advantage by hitchhiking around America, meeting all sorts of crazy people, and eventually becoming a model. And she works, uh, her manager is the Countess, played by Sir John Hurt. And she gets sent to, you know, meet with different people, uh, and eventually she's sent out to a, uh, a ranch out west that deals with feminine, uh, products, feminine beauty products, and hygiene products. And she's there to shoot a commercial, and there's also a bunch of, uh, nearly extinct whooping cranes that live near and on this ranch. And she meets a whole slew of you know nutty characters. Uh, Pat Morita as the chink. Uh, we have Carol Kane as trigger Carla. Trigger warning.
1: Trigger warning. <laughs> and uh, after the fact, but that's the
0: name from the book. That's the name from the book. Uh, Buck Henry as Dr. Dreyfus. We have Ken Casey as Sissy's dad. Uh, Roseanne Barr as Madame Zoe. Angie Dickinson as Miss Adrian, Lorraine Bracco as Dolores Del Ruby, Keanu Reeves as Julian Gitch. And Rain Phoenix as Bonanza Jellybean. Uh, silly names. A crazy cast of characters. And the movie... Oh, and Udo Kier is in this, too, as the commercial director. <clears throat> uh, some say this movie is a huge mess. Some, some, but you oh, can't see me now. But my people, hand,
1: my hand is raised.
0: All, all people think this movie is a huge mess. But uh, we'll. I'm excited to kind of unpack this movie a little bit because I feel most people don't want to.
1: Well, I, your your bravery, your your you know your your iconoclastic uh, point of view is is on full display here. You are. <laughs> To defend this film, so how is the world wrong about this film, Brian?
0: This is one of the most hated movies of all time. If you only need to look as far as your Leonard Malton guide, where he gives it a bomb and says it's one of the worst films of the decade, the decade being the 90s. Pretty strong words, Mr. Malton. Uh, I remember hearing not good things about it. I saw it on VHS early on and thought it was great. And don't understand why everybody else hates this movie. And a lot of people complain it doesn't fit in with the other Gus Van Sant movies at the time. I disagree. Um, and maybe I'm a, a person alone on this because I literally don't know anyone else who likes this other than my wife who also likes it. So the two of us enjoy this movie. and But I am going to say that I've not read the book but as we know from past episodes of Dune and Rules of Attraction, I don't care. That's, to me, that's not a valid opinion to like or dislike a movie, is that it's nothing like the book. Uh, I think that's a boring opinion to have. Uh, so let's talk about this movie, because I know that going into this, that you, not crazy about this movie. <laughs> hmm. I don't know. I, it makes me feel crazy. So... <laughs> So talk to me about, so did you read the book before you ever saw the movie?
1: Oh, yeah. I'm, I, when I was in high school, I was a big fan of Tom Robbins. So I had read many of his books. Not all of his books, but at least three or four of his books before I had seen this movie, maybe five. And so I obviously really liked Tom Robbins. He comes from the Northwest. And uh, I think the first book of his I read was Still Life with Woodpecker. You never forget your first. That was my first, and I, I, it's probably still my favorite. Although "Fierce Invalids: Home from Hot Climates" is also pretty great. So, and I, you know, I'm I'm with you in general that a film is a film and a book is a book. So, when you're going to make a film, you can't make the book. Yeah. And at the same time. I think that there is some. I think when you are a filmmaker adapting the first novel that's been adapted from a very popular novelist, you have some responsibility to the audience for that book. Because that the audience for that book is gonna come out to see the movie. And the audience the the people who haven't read the book are going to come out and see the movie and that's going to be their first impression of that author. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that's how this film really fails because we've never got another Tom Robbins adaptation. So I think it's pretty... If this had been in any way successful, there there probably would have been more. So... You know, I mean, the, there's the complaint that Kubrick took uh, took liberties with Stephen King's The Shining. But he made a great movie that didn't do anything to—I mean, it annoyed Stephen King, but it didn't do anything to dampen Stephen King as a writer of books that could be made into movies that were very successful. True. And I'm even looking at Gus Van Zandt's work around that, that, that time, and I'm, I, I really like films like um, My Own Private Idaho and Drugstore Cowboy and To Die For. I really like My Own Private Idaho. And I think all of those films are just, like, they seem like he's trying more. Like, he's—whatever he's, he's doing in those films that makes those films work, he's not doing in this film— so I think that that's where my real issue is, is that he didn't just make a bad Gus Van Zandt film. He made a bad, a a bad Tom Robbins movie and sort of ended that, like maybe sometime people will come back to make uh, more Tom Robbins films, but they're going to have to get past this one. I think another example that is another film that I know you like, another film that I think of as in this category is Ford Fairlane. Like it's yeah. a film that ended Andrew Dice Clay and the possibility <laughs> of that character. No one's ever gonna make that. And there was a lot there. Uh, yeah. Po- <laughs> Positive examples would be like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, The Right Stuff, Slaughterhouse Five, Catch Twenty Two, and even though it wasn't the first Elmore Leonard movie, Get Shorty is like yeah. an example of a film that makes you love that writer and want to see more stories from that writer. Yeah. And this does not do that. Um, what
0: what what's funny is I don't like books like this. Like I I don't like Kurt Vonnegut. I don't like things where everyone has funny names. Like I can't I, I cannot give the time to a book like this kind of satire, this kind of counterculture thing, but I really like the movies. <laughs> They're based on these kind of like these kind of books. Have you read uh, any
1: Kurt Vonnegut?
0: I tried. I couldn't. I could not get into it. Which one? I read Breakfast of Champions, and it was good. But it has this kind of there's just something annoying I, to it, me. Breakfast of Champions can
1: be t- like I wouldn't. I wouldn't start <laughs> with that one. <laughs> and and again, I wouldn't. I, I I think if you read Tom Robbins, you would. Enjoy
0: it more than than you think. Um, like, cause, cause, this kind of quirk for whatever reason, I cannot handle on the on paper, but in a movie, I can get into it. Really? <clears throat> so yeah,
1: it's because to me, thinking about okay, let's talk about Sissy Hankshaw's thumbs, uh, Uma <laughs> Thurman's big, big thumbs. <laughs> These are not well constructed prosthetics. They are <laughs> distracting and maybe at that time you couldn't have done better, although I think you probably could. But let's you know, I think uh there's just like yeah, there's something that is that doesn't really work about them, but in a book the big thumbs totally work because the you yeah. you make them in your mind as opposed to having this absurdity On This woman and Uma Thurman does her best that she can with this. Thankfully, Pulp Fiction was the next year. So this didn't end her. (laughs) But I I, I haven't gone through exactly. But I have a feeling that everybody who's in this movie, maybe not John Hurt or Angie Dickinson, because they were just sort of in a different place. But I think everyone else might have taken a taken a hit.
0: I don't know. This. I mean, like, I mean, Gus Van Sant bounced back so quickly after this with To Die For. Like, this didn't derail his career at all. No, no. He he just derailed uh, everybody else's. That's <laughs> And I mean, and you look at the cast, like, uh, Umar Thurman got more famous the year after this. Candor Reeves is, like, working uh, on his way up from yeah, this. Yeah, but like, let's see uh... <laughs> how
1: long is it between this and The Matrix, because this is the be- this is... I feel like But this is
0: this but this is the same year as Speed. So he did this and Speed in the same year. And like Speed did was a hit. Lucky for
1: him. You know? But then okay, but then okay, wait, wait. But then we have Johnny Mnemonic, walk in the clouds, chain reaction, feeling Minnesota. The last people time like I committed suicide. No, they didn't.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, they didn't. Like I don't think Ken or reason would Nobody like Johnny favor. Mnemonic. Yes. Honestly, people jo- I
1: think wait a people like Johnny Mnemonic. Ba- wait, back up. Back up. Because before this, so this is when Keanu was at, I feel like, his most hated. Because Much Ado About Nothing, he was savaged oh, for. Yeah. Even Cowgirls Get the Blues is terrible. Little Buddha, he was savaged for. Then Speed yeah. is a hit. And even Speed, yeah, it was a hit, but it was not. Nobody thought, oh, wow, Keanu Reeves is great now. It's like, no, Keanu Reeves <laughs> is a bankable, dunderhead, good-looking guy in a movie. Then Johnny yeah. Mnemonic also didn't hit Walk in the Clouds. I guess maybe that's the last, the next time that I heard people saying kind of nice things about him. And it, yeah. it wasn't until 1999 with The Matrix that, well, at least that, that, that I feel like he got back. So I, I don't want to blame yeah. uh, even Cowgirls <laughs> Get the Blues for. Keanu's dip at that point but it certainly was a piece of all those and I think if we go back to it Little Buddha even cowgirls get the blues and much ado about nothing I think there's probably more to like about Little Buddha and much ado about nothing in retrospect Um, I'm I'm gonna I want to I want to get all this out and then I don't want to make this all about me hating on this film because I really want to Find out what you like no. about it, but I want to make sure that my misgivings are registered. <laughs> sure. So, um, yeah, I, I think I think that may be it. The only other thing I would say is that in uh, in preparing for this, I just happened to see a film called Mayday, a pretty recent film about all these women living on an island. And if you want that kind of thing, I, it was just right it was because I was thinking about Even Cowgirls Get the Blues and I was watching this film Mayday and thinking, this why didn't this person make Even Cowgirls Get the Blues? They know how to hang out with a bunch of women who are rebelling against the patriarchy in a way that doesn't feel kitschy and two-dimensional it feels like you they, they feel like real people even though they're pretty these are some pretty weird women in May Day. and so yeah uh what well, we can get into there 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 are some nice little flourishes there's some interesting things here but in general i uh yeah i think if you like tom robbins it's hard to like this film but if you don't like if you don't like or know Tom Robbins and you really like Uma Thurman and Keanu Reeves and uh, Gus Van Sant, then you might. In this case, you might, and that's where, maybe where you're coming from. So, so Brian, why don't you take us through what you think of <laughs> as the great parts of this film?
0: Well, I, I think it also is that I'm really nostalgic and have a great feeling for this part, point in movie making, like in Hollywood and an independent film. Like this was a very exciting time. <clears throat> to see all these directors kind of coming up like you have this independent wave coming up and then these people who have made these kind of personal small weird movies on their own are now being allowed to kind of like kind of sneak into hollywood and make stuff and mostly make things that people are really turned off by like you have steven soderbergh coming in and doing kafka which no one really liked at the time uh, i really like that movie you have uh, Richard Linklater starting to get bigger budgets. Uh, you have Spike Lee, uh, Jim Jarmusch, Gregoraki, like all these people that have been like on the fringes. By '93 '94, they're starting to be allowed to make movies with bigger actors and bigger budgets. Tarantino, also one of these people, and there's just something really exciting to kind of see these new, new points of view making these movies. It's not just people who went through the Hollywood system and. Are directing movies like these aren't television directors who became film directors these are the weirdos these are the people that said i want to make a movie and they made a movie and now hollywood is like saying okay well what let's give you a hit book or let's give you these big actors and this is sort of that for gus van sand this was his first sort of I think bigger thing uh like the biggest thing he's done at the time and he made bigger movies since then more successfully with To Die For and Good Will Hunting which he made right after this but it's just it's just it's really fascinating to me to watch a movie like this like and given to a director with a very unique point of view that isn't the, the matter what's always fun about it to me is that when these directors are given kind of the kings to the kingdom they never rarely make a movie that's for everybody which is what Hollywood always tries to do, but if you have an indie guy or gal, they're not going to make a movie that ends up for anybody, even if it is based on a hit book. I don't think there's a world at all where Gus Van Sant was ever able to make it. Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, it would have been a hit. And like no matter if the script was more like the book or it had different actors, I think he couldn't, in this point, reach that the masses yet that they will with Goodwill Hunting. I think he still is too much in this sort of. Pacific Northwest Indie World. (laughs) And and, I don't know. I just find that really exciting. And even if the movie doesn't work, and I admit that this movie doesn't quite work. It definitely has big problems. But there's something about it that I find really exciting when I watch it. Well, can I ask you a question?
1: Because I hear what you're saying, but I think of how... Incredibly cinematic, my own private Idaho is. Yeah, those scenes of the house falling out of the sky and cry, like that was a that's a big that's a big movie, in terms yeah. of like you don't you can't make an indie movie where you get that where you do that, <laughs> and this is a couple years later, but this feels like a huge step back as a filmmaker. Like it's like he seems so sure of himself in my own private Idaho. Then he does a bunch of music videos. Mm -hmm. Chris Isaac, Elton John, Red Hot Chili Peppers, big, big artists, big budgets, big cinema. He the next thing in 95 is to die for another beautifully shot, just masterfully made film. And then there's this in the middle I, I don't like I, I get your narrative that he's getting bigger budgets and he's getting bigger people and he can't he he is who he is. But this feels like an outlier, like he is capable <laughs> with to die for in my own private Idaho of making a film that doesn't feel like it was made by an amateur who doesn't really know how to use the tools of cinema.
0: Right. Yeah, but I like but I like how weird this movie is. Like I like See, I I think this movie is very cinematic. Like I really like the part where she's hypnotizing the chickens and you have this long shot and you reveal like all this this whole like this all these chickens that have been hypnotized. Like that's weird. That's oh, like yeah. well, You I, know I, like that's that's really weird. great. It's weird, <laughs> but is it I mean
1: wait a second. Is it is it true is it cinematic in this like, yeah, that's, it's a it's, shot of her, it's a shot of jelly bean uh, of a, uh, what's her what's her name? Bonanza jelly bean, a bonanza yeah. jelly bean. Say like she says she wants to teach Sissy how to uh, hypnotize a chicken. And there's just a shot of her out in a field, like not a very com- not a particularly compelling shot of her c- circling a chicken around. And then the camera goes down to the ground <laughs> and you see a bunch of hypnotized chickens. I mean, that's yeah. Yeah, that would be. <laughs> that would be like when i'm i'm talking about the cinematic mastery of those shots of the house falling in my own private idaho or the way we we meet nicole kidman in to die for i don't think that that i, I just i hear what like i actually i don't understand what you're saying how is that a cin- like it's a choice but you could make that in your first film that's like that's there's no it, there's no cuts it's just yeah. a shot of someone waving a chicken around and then some chickens on the ground that's how is that deeply yeah, cinematic? But
0: I, I think your definite, <laughs> well, your definition of cinematic, I think, is like shots or filters that a DP uses. But I mean, like, you know, the the early m- movies of just the train <laughs> going towards the camera that's that's cinematic. It's like I think you can have <laughs> you can have a long shot and have everything, and just the way the person moves in that shot is cinematic, and the, the camera doesn't have to move at all. You know, it's all the about the framing, the art, the idea. Like, I think so.
1: Do like, you, so you think that that shot is
0: extremely well framed? I don't think it's a framing, but I think there's something cinematic about watching a long a long shot of somebody hypnotizing a chicken. Uh, <laughs> I think that's I think it's amazing. I watched that scene. I'm like, that is a great, what a great shot, what a great scene in a movie. Okay, um, but do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah.
1: Is that there's the To Die For and Goodwill Hunting, and I imagine. All of his videos for these big rock stars. When I'm talking, yeah, maybe we're using a different definition of cinematic. But what he's doing in those films is not. I I don't see it in that shot. So, could like take let's take the word cinematic out of it. (laughs) Let's just talk about the quality of beautiful camera moves and great color and just shots that hypnotize you like a chicken like like yeah. in my own private idaho do you see that there do you do you acknowledge that there's a difference in terms of the cinematic quality of the films on either side of it
0: and what well, you're describing but i think this is a this is an argument i've had with many people at the video store and at the theater i think some people's idea of what is cinematic or good cinema is that you have a really good DP or a big or a budget where you can afford these great looking shots. But like I think to go back I think after last season is an incredibly cinematic movie. There's something so beautiful about those shots. They are sloppy, but they're but they are images that I've never seen before. And I've never seen a lady hypnotize a chicken in a field full of hypnotized chickens. <laughs> And so I see that and be like, that has been captured on film and it's really exciting to me. (laughs) Well, but no, that was captured in print. And then,
1: then Gus Van Zandt said to Rain Phoenix, hey, wave that chicken around. Yeah. And like, that's, I I don't, maybe it's theatrical. I don't believe it's cinematic. (laughs) I don't like, uh, yes, it is cinematic because it's a cinema, it's a camera and we see her. Yeah. And then we have a reveal. But yeah. it is, if that was the level that Gus Van Zandt lived at, at a film as a filmmaker, I don't think we'd be talking about him now. I think yeah. that is a, a huge step back from my own private Idaho. And we could even talk about Rain Phoenix in this. Like, again, I feel like she's another one. Like, if this was a good film, then she would be in more movies. But... This film basically, it, I I appreciate that they they put her they gave her that this opportunity. I've I've had Rain Phoenix on my my other podcast, Radio Eight Ball. I, I so I, I I met her. She's cool ish. Not like I don't have a particular like. Oh my god, I'm a huge Rain Phoenix devotee. But again, a sign of a good director is knowing how to place your actors in a place that makes you want to see more of them. And that didn't mm-hmm. happen with this. So like even with that, like if it was so if it was such a beautiful like a great cinematic moment, then Rain Phoenix would have then it would have portrayed Re- Rain Phoenix in a way that was more like someone we'd want to see more of. I don't want to stay just picking on that one scene, but I, I feel like there's a, we have a we have a a miscommunication in terms of what we're referring to as cinema, and what I'm trying to say is, if we use the examples of To Die For and My Own Private Idaho, there is definitely a different, you know, going back to basics quality, I guess, you might say for for Gus Van Sant, but and uh, we should also say that tom robbins does the the narration, the narration in, this, yeah. in this so he he must have been involved i don't want to like say that you know maybe if tom, if tom robbins signed off on this you <clears> know
0: he <throat> then he made a mistake too it's also worth noting that this movie is heavily edited like the version that we have watched has a lot taken out of it and who knows what a director's cut of this movie would have been like but there's like a big chunk of this movie that was just snipped out of the movie. Uh, they they did a premiere at some festival. Nobody liked it. So Gus Van Sant came back and took out a lot of the movie. So who knows like what it would be like if we had more. Because like the parts with Keanu Reeves and Crispin Glover and Sean Young and Ed Begley Jr. and Kil Kane don't make a lot of sense. It feels sort of just a weird kind of, what is going on here? And I guess there was a lot of that taken out. Like there was a whole other story. And then there was a third story that was taken out that had nothing to do with these characters. Like, so it was a much longer movie. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that ultimately was a mistake that he should have kept the big one, even if nobody liked it, just to kind of give us more for the characters and more, Yeah, I don't know. Well, so... for me, that
1: definitely wouldn't have made it better because the what's all what we see on screen. There's all it's all it's just to me it's wrong from the jump. Like there's he's <laughs> just he does, like the thumbs are off the way he yeah whatever he's doing he that I loved in my own private Idaho and again this is what I was I was like oh my god the guy who did my own private Idaho is doing one of my favorite authors this is going to be amazing and. So it wasn't just like I was going to see Tom Robbins, I was going to see Gus Van Sant do Tom Robbins. And he did, and I was and I was let down. But for <laughs> you, what would you like would you would you have liked to see? Like would you have wanted? Do you really think that more would have made it better or would that would have made it better for other people?
0: I think it would make it think like a lot of the movie feels just sort of like disjointed like a lot of like that what's going on like that like it feels like there should be more like pat morita's character a lot of it i don't quite understand like a lot of the movie i don't quite understand what's going on because it feels sort of rushed through like it they took a big book and crammed it into 90 minutes but if there's more of all of these people like and give the movie the movie a little more room to breathe like the pacing of this movie is much faster than like my own private idaho which is a little more of a slower pace and i think this the the quickness of this maybe doesn't serve it well and maybe they're doing that to try to get it to add to the quirk if if the if it's like a really fast you know crazy thing happening sort of movie i mean i don't know like because like yeah like the scenes in new york with Keanu reeves just feels like okay and then it's over (laughs) (laughs) But I like that little group of weirdos and I feel like, what? There's got to be more to what these guys are up to, I'm guessing, in the book and in the director's cut or the longer version. Um, But even with that, I still like this movie and I feel it fits in, to me, it fits in well with the other Gus Van Sant things because it still feels, even though it doesn't take place there really, it kind of still has that Pacific Northwest feel to it. Like it, it has this sort of like 90s sort of, thing going on uh, that I that I enjoy watching that I enjoy more even now because the world has moved so far from the 90s that it's just like it's kind of like a time capsule it does
1: take place in the north like the the place the retreat that they go to is in Oregon because okay. they talk yeah. about sisters yeah and Tom Robbins is a northwest writer so it definitely yeah, yeah it, it's
0: it's other than the scenes in New York but, like, there's the parts in New York and stuff. Uh, but I I like... I don't know. I, I find that whole world exciting to me. Maybe because I'm from Olympia. But, like, that 90s when Washington State and Oregon kind of became this thing in everything. Like, whether it was Twin Peaks or Gus Van Sant stuff. You know, it's just, like, it's just fun for me to see kind of that point of view in a movie. And I... I don't know. I just, like... I really like there's so many scenes in this movie that I watch. I'm like, what a great scene! Like, like Sissy Hank Shaw masturbating to clouds. Like, this stuff I've never seen in movies before. And, and that to me, that makes a good movie. Like, if I'm getting images or moments that I've never seen in a movie before, whether it was originally in a book or not, that is very exciting to me. Again,
1: <laughs> that scene, like, I just, I, it doesn't, <laughs> I don't feel like that scene captures.
0: Yeah, I. It, well, I'm glad. To, I'm, I'm glad it worked for you. Because to me, if a, if a if a new idea is in a movie, even if it's sloppy, I'm very I'm very happy because it's something that's new to me. So it may not have like the great like maybe there's a better way to direct it, maybe there's a better place to put the camera, but if there's a new image, like I'm hungry for new images, especially when the bulk of things people make. You can tell they just made it with coverage and it's kind of shot, you know, like a, how a TV, the regular TV show is shot. But when you get person masturbating in the clouds or hypnotizing chickens or Uma Thurman dressed up as a whooping crane while Udo Kier is yelling at her, I'm like, this is a movie that I've never seen this before. This is really great, and some of it definitely feel like the chicken part. Is that in the book, the hypnotizing chickens? Yeah. When all the, the stuff b- you're talking when about. Was is the, in the when book. was the book made? What year did the book come out? Uh, it was like his- published in 1976. 76. Because yeah, because there's all those like Her- Werner Herzog's really into hypnotizing chickens, and I think it's in Strostek, or one of those movies where he has a chicken being hypnotized, Heart of Glass perhaps, and I feel like. I don't know, but I've never seen it the way it is done in this movie. I, yeah, I just, it's exciting. It's new, new images are exciting, no matter how they are done. Like if a person on their phone shot, someone hypnotizing chickens before I saw this movie, I would be mesmerized by that and think that is amazing. What a great movie.
1: I'm just trying to obey the thumper rule. And if you don't have something nice to say, don't say nothing at all. But I will just say that for those of us for whom those are not new images. Yeah. It is a degradation of the image as opposed to... It's not even like... Gus Van Zant was like I read this and I want to do my version of hypnotizing chickens. And now they're gonna be hypnotizing turtles. Okay? That like like that would be uh, it would be jarring because I'm like, oh, it's chickens in the movie, and why are they doing turtles on a farm? But then it would be him putting something on it. I really do feel like he's just sort of reading the book, taking the ideas that are in the book and showing them in the most perfunctory kind of way. <laughs> like you're talking about, like Sissy Hankshaw, like that that scene doesn't get at any of the sort of... Uh, one of the things that Tom Robbins does is he writes this sort of overflowing sort of pagan prose celebrating orgasms and bodily pleasure and love, deep, psych- psychedelic, profound, you know, and a lot of what the Pat Morita character in the book functions as is is this guy sort of this tantric wizard living up in this hill and we hear we get lots of these kind of flowing passages about the way he sees the world and so when he he describes sissy hankshaw's ability to pleasure herself with her massive thumbs it's five pages of ecstatic prose and in this she just is on the side of the road looking at the clouds for like five seconds and then a car comes by and honks and she rolls over (laughs) in the dirt and you, and none of that, like Tom Robbins prose is this incredibly erotic prose. And I feel like the way Gus Van Zandt sees the eroticism in this movie is as just sort of kind of as disgusting as the John Hurt character sees these women like, Oh, you're gross. You're smelly. You're dirty. You know, there's no, there's no like, you could, he talks about—like, the, the characters talk about—the cowgirls talk about their erotic experiences. But even then, it's sort of joking about it. There's none of that feeling for what the novel is trying to get at, is that these women are these powerful, erotic creatures who are owning their own eroticism, denying it to the world, and that is a massive rebellion. And in this, it just doesn't, like, I don't, I don't get that in this. And again, this is because I've read the book, and I, I come to it having read the book. Uh, I couldn't look. Isn't that the John...
0: <laughs> I had to who turn you... away. <laughs> who do you think would make a good version of this book? Like, if this movie didn't exist, and at any point in history, after 1976, if someone was to adapt this, who do you think would get it right? Or is it an unfilmable book? Is it one of those books? Where no, you I don't. Do it? I that,
1: that, I, just, I I totally disagree that it's, and that's that's why I I'm I have a problem with this. I don't think that Tom Robbins is unfilmable. Um, certainly not more unfilmable than Hunter S. Thompson.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess
1: I feel like almost anyone would, would, <laughs> would have done it better. I, I actually I feel like even Gus Van Sant would have done it better a year earlier or a year later. It really just, when it honestly, it it kind of feels like maybe it's too much belief in the, the book and the people you're with. Like, okay, we got this great cast and I feel like they all, they also just, it feels like it was made high. Um, (laughs) But it just, it, it, yeah, it just, it it feels like it, it's sort of like, okay, well, people are going to love this book. We're not going to have to, I don't need to make it cinematic. I'm just going to show these images in the most sort of like, this just happened. Oh, she masturbated on the side of the road. This guy's, you know, she's, she's hypnotizing a chicken. She's got massive thumbs. They're just there as opposed to, you know, I wish that uh, he treated Uma Thurman's thumbs the way Quentin Tarantino treats Uma Thurman's feet. <laughs> like that there was there was some sense of erotic charge to a book that's an, it's a highly erotic novel. I don't feel like I
0: yeah, I don't feel that in this. Do you? I don't think this movie's erotic, no, but I didn't know that it was supposed to be. Well, you're talking the mo- about <laughs> the about movie. Didn't, one, <laughs> go on. The movie doesn't make me think like know, there's nothing in the movie where I'm like I'm supposed to be feeling erotic. But, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> Why well, did but But is that so the book is that way? Because a movie I don't think plays on that it's supposed to be. Well, I don't Uh, I don't
1: mean erotic in the sense of like nine and a half weeks. I mean erotic in the sense that it's about like everything in this movie is about sex. It's about these women rebelling against feminine hygiene products and Sissy Hankshaw and her uh her erotic power on all of these men and women and everyone, everyone wants to, you know, everyone wants to love her. She has the, like, she has the affair with, she has this tantric love affair with Pat Morita's character. There's sex throughout this entire film. So that, I think that's, I think maybe you're, you're, you're making my point that there's sex throughout this film and there's not, there's nothing erotic about it. That, and this is a film and the, and Tom Robbins as a writer, celebrates that free love sexuality of the like and maybe it's dated and maybe there's not you know you could make a statement film about but it's not doing that either
0: (laughs) i wonder what it was because there's a lot of movies at this time in hollywood based on hit books based on hit books that had an erotic thing going on but the movies were not or they aggressively were jokey about it like exit to eden which came out a year after this based on a erotic you know book by Anne rice and then they gave it to gary marshall and made it into like a zany comedy and Ugh. took all the erotic out of it <laughs> or a uh, road to wellville i think that was around this time too have you ever seen that one
1: yeah tc boyle and i yeah. think
0: that's based on a book and that movie is just kind of jokey and it's just like this inability to take a sexual book seriously for whatever reason like in the 90s? I kind of feel like
1: Road to Wellville got if if because uh, I've read both the book and the and seen the film, and they're different, but it got the tone. Road to Wellville got the TC Boyle tone, and I in a way that I would I wish I, I really wish that even cowgirls did. It's a it's sort of a yeah. Uh, Road to Wellville is a boring adaptation. <laughs> but at least it's it hits all the right notes it doesn't give you less than the book yeah. gives you it doesn't give you more and it also i guess would say it fa- I don't, did tc boyle get any other books of his made i feel like he had another adaptation
0: that, that's the only one i know of but uh have you seen exit to eden i have not seen exit eden i know you must have <laughs> Uh, it's great. And it's another <laughs> movie that everybody hates. Like like a year after even Cowgirls Get the Blues, I feel Exit to Eden took its spot as the most hated movie <laughs> in Hollywood. And it's the same sort of thing where it's based on this hit book that a lot of people read and that's full of so many great famous people. You know, like that movie has Dana Delany, like right out of, uh, was she with China Beach? Is that the show she was on? Mm-hmm. Hector Elizondo, like Dan Aykroyd, Rosie O'Donnell, kind of at the beginning of her career and Laura Herring's in it. And it's just, it's, they took a book that was not a comedy and decided to make it into a zany comedy and it didn't work. (laughs) And it almost feels like, and I don't know if you got this or not watching cowgirls get the blues. It kind of reminded me a lot of that movie candy written by Buck Henry and Terry based on a Terry Southern novel. Mm Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen that movie?
1: Long time ago.
0: Where it's like, it's like kind of the same idea as like this this lady is kind of going through this like journey and she meets all these crazy characters and it's very sexual. And one of them is like uh, Marlon Brando and Ringo Starr. And it has that kind of Terry Southern thing going on. And I think the fact that Buck Henry's in Cowgirls Get the Blues and that he wrote the next Gus Van Sant movie, I think... With this movie, that's sort of the type of movie... I think Gus Van Sant was trying to do like a Terry Southern movie with this. I think he's trying to do like a Magic Christian. Oh, yeah, or, I can see that. Or a that. Candy. And he's trying to do this sort of... Like those kind of movies they made where it's very counterculture, but it's full of all these famous people. And we're going to throw in like a Burroughs cameo for those that know. But we're going to have like Keanu Reeves in here and like some of these more famous people. And we're trying to do this like crazy... Castic characters and the thing is most of those movies never work like candy doesn't even quite work i mean magic christian is great i think that movie works but candy definitely has the same feel as this where it's kind of a mess where i'm sure they kind of didn't get the point of the book exactly but they're trying to get because tone is really hard and i think maybe at least from what you're saying it seems like they didn't get the tone right for this movie that you get when you read the book
1: yeah yeah I, I should say also, uh, I wrote to Wellville, I was wrong. That did end the TC Boyle adaptations, <laughs> and that was Alan Parker. And that uh, was not a liked movie either. No one liked that movie. I liked um, it. You liked it. Well, maybe we do an episode Sorry. on it. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't like it, and I'm not. A, I'm not ready to go and do a champ, do, champion it. But I felt like <laughs> I liked. It. it was like I. I didn't love it. it I didn't. Yeah. I haven't thought about it really much since then, but. Um, uh, who plays the the Kellogg's guy in it? He's who's it's, his, it's Anthony Hopkins.
0: Yeah, he's got, he's great. With, in he's it. got like buck teeth. Yeah, you <laughs> he have Dana Carvey in there, Bridget Fonda. Like that is a John Cusack. Yeah. That's a yeah. that's a that's an odd movie. Um, I, I do like yeah. that movie. I, do like, <laughs> I might go back and watch it. I might go back and watch it. So, so we may disagree on the tone of this movie working for us or not, or whether it's cinematic or not. But there's definitely a few things worth noting that I find really interesting in this movie that I haven't quite figured out why it is what. Okay. Why? So, why? I understand why he dedicated this movie to River Phoenix. But why did he dedicate this movie to River Phoenix? Could he... Could he, This could have been a better movie to dedicate to... I get he passed away between the last movie and this movie and his sister's in it. But it definitely feels kind of like an odd... Like, why is this, was this a book that River Phoenix liked? Like, was, is there something behind that other than it just, he wanted to dedicate whatever movie it was next to him since he just passed away? Or is there an actual meaning to it?
1: Well, I have to imagine that River was going to play one of the roles in this. Do we, do you know anything about that?
0: No, I don't. I just saw, you know, just in the movie when you watch it, it says that at the end. Right or at the beginning second. uh that it's for that's for river um and it, it is it is great his devotion to that family still you yeah. know like it's great that rain phoenix is in it. it's great that walking phoenix is in the next one and to die for and in one of the more recent ones so he definitely is devoted to that family are they are they pacific northwest family i know that they're v- like vegan and they're they're kind of like hippie parents sort of thing, but are they from Oregon?
1: No. Or just in spirit? (laughs) I don't believe so. I know, I have a friend, uh, actually, who's going to be a guest on this show in the future. We're going to be doing an episode about a film called Up Against Amanda. My friend Justin, who's a filmmaker, uh, Justin Freet, a filmmaker from um, Seattle. And as a, like when he was like 12 or 13, his family went down and spent a summer in Mexico, and the Phoenixes were living on the same beach. So he spent a summer running around with Joaquin, who was, had a different name at the time, and River, and just all, And he has all these stories about just sort of hanging out and running around with those kids. So I feel like they were just sort of rambling with a family that was could, could have come out of this book. So, I feel yeah. I and I do think there that is the one thing that maybe I give. I still don't think this is a good movie or a good adaptation of the book, but I do give Gus Van Sant some. I don't know, just some leeway, in that he is mourning the death of River Phoenix. And he's bringing the family that's mourning the death of River Phoenix into this film. And that's got to be really sad. And it's I, that's not a very erotic feeling. This <laughs> film feels more like it's in mourning than it is excited <laughs> well, <laughs> for the lusty take on life. That and, is, it's
0: de- and it's definitely out life. of all his movies from the 90s. The breeziest and the most positive, like it's not like his other movies are all dark. Um, like even Goodwill Hunting gets kind of dark and it gets, gets serious. And I guess until you get to Finding Forrester, you know, like this kind of, maybe he just felt like I need to just make something fun and silly and maybe this wasn't the right book to make that into, but maybe that was his mindset after having a good friend and collaborator pass away so suddenly. To like, maybe you just want to go out and to the ranch and just make a bunch of jokes and dress Uma Thurman up as a bird and just have fun for a few months. (laughs) Distract his sister with it. Just be like, you can be a cowgirl, it'll be fun. Let's hang out with Pat Morita in the desert. (laughs) Like, let's let's cheer ourselves up here. the maybe. high desert the high the desert high de- yeah Oregon. maybe it's just like yeah let's do a bunch of peyote and just get all our friends together keanu you can be in it you can wear a crazy plaid outfit crispin you can be in it and have a comb over and we'll just have fun and just make this weird thing and just kind of like enjoy life well instead of just being sad Let, maybe that's I, wanna, what it, I,
1: I also want to make make clear you just said Crispin, not Chris Penn. Don't look for this. Don't look for Chris Penn in this movie. He <laughs> Crispin is this Glover. Movie. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but I think, I don't know, that could be maybe that's what this is. Maybe it's just a, uh, this is Gus Van Sant grieving. This is, yeah, yeah everybody, everybody grieves differently.
1: So, yeah, some of us destroy the, <laughs> the cinematic possibilities of one of America's great uh, novelists of the 70s. Others of us just. You know,
0: quietly drink alone in our home. Who's to say what's the better way to, get to do it? <laughs> Another thing that is really weird, and I don't know why and I can't find any info, that he. Cre- this is the only time that I've remembered seeing him credited as Gus Van Sant Jr. Why hmm. is that? Why is he listed as that in the credits? I've never seen that in other things. But in this one, that's how he's listed. I'm sure that was his choice. Maybe he is a Gus Van Sant Jr. Is that how he's? I don't. Yeah. This is one of
1: those things I do not know. I'm your I'm your Tom Robbins expert. You got to be the the
0: uh, Gus Van Sant expert. (laughs) Yeah, and it's the only time that I think he's credited as Gus Van Sant Jr. Like, is that a joke? Is that a reality? I don't really understand. Um. What are your thoughts on the Katie Lang soundtrack? That is like the only positive thing that all reviewers talk about when you read the reviews is like, we hate this movie, but we like the music of Katie Lang. Eh, you
1: know, whatever. I, I don't... Uh, it's... I'm, it's... It's probably fine. And when I'm putting this together, I'm going to use some of the music. And I remember it be like. I, I I don't see it as a as enough of a silver line. The, there are other things that I that I took pleasure in more in this film. In a way, I you know when I when I spoke with you about this when we were talking about it a while back, I was saying how I don't maybe I told you this. I don't feel like this film feels like the seventies or the sixties or whenever this is. I guess it's supposed to be taking place in the seventies. Yeah, but. Going back and watching it again, visually, actually, that's one of the things that I kind of like that Gus Van Sant gets is that he gets the sixty, the late 60s, early 70s without doing a lot of needle drops and yeah. sort of obvious like they just it feels grimy the way that movies that really took place in that era feel like, you know, like the stuff in New York, particularly yeah. In a way. Oh, it also made me think of what's the Robert Downey Sr. film that you love? Greaser's Palace? Greaser's Palace. This, all like, I felt like it also reminded me of that, which also felt like it was true to a 70s vibe. But in yeah. a way, I don't know if Katie Lang's music. I think Katie Lang's music might have uh, distracted, like, made me feel like I wasn't in. The
0: '60s, '70s vibe because I don't associate her with that. <laughs> it's funny, is I always forget this movie is supposed to take place then because I don't. It doesn't read to me as that unless someone says it does. And I think also because and maybe this works for it or doesn't that the '90s, especially in the early '90s, were so obsessed with the '70s. Like '70s were back. People were dressing up in '70s clothes. So it does. It's to me, it feels just very 1993 when I watch this movie. This reminds me of the nineties <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> I was like, ah, I remember the nineties when people were really into Western wear, but then also bell bottoms. And it was just sort of like, this is just sort of how 1993 felt if you were hanging out. Uh, and I think that works. And I, I, I like the Katie Lang soundtrack. It has this kind of nice, it's really breezy and like, there's no songs that I remember or take away from it, but while I'm watching it, it just kind of adds to this pleasant this pleasant feeling that I get when I watch this movie. Like I find I find this movie to be very pleasant. Like I'm not laughing out loud on the ground and I'm not really finding anything super profound in it, but there's something about it that I, I find very pleasant. And I think it's because I also like Uma Thurman so much. So I'd like seeing her kind of do these little funny quirky things. Like I love her. <laughs> like even when she's offered the ride, she still has to stick her thumb out before getting into the car. You know, I think that's a funny, weird little thing. I don't know if that's in the book or not. It is. It <laughs> is definitely. I think that's really like, that's just but like. But she all sells that,
1: loose. she sells that moment really great. Like that is a moment <laughs> from the book that is that when she does it, I, I felt good. So, yeah.
0: yeah. And uh, I don't know. And it makes me, I, I kind of watching this makes me want to see more Uma Thurman. Like I forget until I'm watching an Uma Thurman movie how much I really, really like her. And I find her just incredibly charming and funny and just like there's something about her that I really I'm really into, and like I think with this and Pulp Fiction, <clears throat> it just I want I want more I want more Uma Thurman now, in 2022. Let's give us some more Uma. Yeah. Do you uh, do you get a
1: kick out of the fact that her like the Western like the leather full body uh, outfit she's wearing? is reminiscent of, or it's a foreshadowing of her kill bill. Yeah. Jumpsuit. Yeah,
0: no, totally. <laughs> I totally get that. Yeah. It's like in another world, maybe this is that character before she's decided to kill people. She was just trying to love people first and it didn't work. Guess and fancy. Lost ruined the so then she had to go murder. Yeah. Vengeance. The son who cut her thumbs off. Um. <laughs> uh. But I I also like this movie I think because and we've talked about this before like there's certain directors that I like so much that even the huge misfires I'm into and Gus Van Sant is one of those people that like I am a strong defender of his Psycho remake. I truly love that movie. I think it's a masterpiece. I really wish you'd pick that it's, film. <laughs> and we will do that sometime, but there's so much to unpack from that movie and that's such a hated movie and I don't know, I just really there's something about him that's always interesting. And it's always like, he's always trying something. And maybe recently his stuff hasn't quite clicked with anyone. It just kind of, but maybe it's too off the radar. And like, I haven't even seen his last few movies, like sea of trees or, um, restless or promised land. But like, I don't know. I feel he will, he will Seems like someone that could circle back and make something that will really hit people again. Well, feeling. he's he has got a film in production right now based on a Michael
1: Chabon uh, article with okay. Will Farrell called oh. "The Prince of Fashion." A father yeah. brings his son to Paris for Men's Fashion
0: Week. <laughs> Maybe that's the thing that'll <laughs> click. It's yeah, because like I feel like him and Todd Haynes have kind of been moving together at the same time in terms of their careers. Like they're both Portland-based. Uh, queer filmmakers. That's that's. Oh man, I wish
1: Todd. Like, I'd rather see Todd Haynes make this movie so much.
0: I think that's too. What? Because like, what he did with the Velvet Goldmine. If he had done that with this, maybe that. Because that movie oh, is yeah. weird. It's quirky. It's sexual. It's visual. Like visually exciting. Like I feel maybe he. Uh, actually, but well, <laughs> wait—is actually. You know... I, I
1: don't. I, I. This may. Okay, so this is a sort of a sticky place to get into. But let's think about it. So. Tom Robbins, he's so stuck in the, that time of the 70s where yeah. you could be a male writer who's writing feminist novels or writing novels with feminist heroes that are also deeply lusty and sexual. Mm-hmm. Part of their power comes from the sexuality that's projected on them by this male author. And I love Tom Robbins, but my big beef with him is that all of his books, there's in in this, it's the Pat Morita character. But in all of his books, there's like all the guys are bad, are terrible. All the women are great. And then there's this one fantastic guy who all he wants to do is just go down on them forever and listen <laughs> to them. He's the perfect man. Leave your leave your boyfriend for me. I'm Tom Robbins. Um, and it's it's. So that's my my point is that so when I'm thinking about it, I was like well the, maybe this film should have been directed rather than being directed by a gay man, it should have been directed by a woman, or by a a straight guy, who like where there is that erotic charge. I, that's why I feel like the like Gus Van Sant's take on it feels like this is the film that the Duchess would have made, that the John Hurt character <laughs> who finds the women disgusting would have made. And I'm not saying that that's untrue of all, like, I don't want to say that you can't be a gay filmmaker and make a film that is, that has that charge, but it makes sense that Todd Haynes does the velvet gold mine really well because that speaks to his erotic charge. Yeah, And I don't like, I feel like I actually do feel like this movie would have been so much better if it had made been made by a woman who really loved Tom Robbins novels because she would have got these women characters and like that they're the heart of it. And I feel like if it was someone who wasn't rebelling against Tom Robbins' novels and really like was able to get inside of that voice, I feel like it could have been better than the book hmm. as opposed to worse
0: for me. But in 93, there definitely wasn't any female director that I think would have, would have, who could have done it. Like you'd have to be do it now. You'd have to have someone now But who would that even be? I don't know, like which I don't know Uh, director kind of has Jane Campion. Jane Campion (laughs) could have done it. Has she done comedy before? I guess Holy Smoke is supposed to be funny. Uh, (laughs) I don't. I don't think like I don't think this film. I don't think this film is a. uh, This book
1: isn't a comedy. That it's absurd and there's humorous stuff in it. But I don't think that it's like I think that maybe is part of where it fails for me is that it wants it to be a sort of like oh this is fun like this is funny but it's not yeah I don't know um, I'm sure that there – well I I'd invite our listeners to suggest who would be the ideal director for this that'd be that'd be a good thing to know like if, if yeah I don't I don't know who I, I'm I'm throwing out Jane Campion because she deals with <laughs> sex. And she knows how to deal with men and women very well. In fact, the series Top of the Lake that she created, the first season, deals with a women's separatist group that feels a lot more like what I would have liked to have seen in this movie than how the cowgirls are represented. Okay. Yeah, I just feel like she would get into this a little bit more. I feel like I would believe Hmm. the... I definitely would feel, would believe these women characters and Sissy Hankshaw a lot more if there was a woman, a woman's point of view in there. And maybe yeah. there were, you know, who knows? I'm sure there were a lot, I mean, there were a ton of, there were a lot of women's point of views in terms of Rain Phoenix and uh, Lorraine Bracco and Sean Young and, Char- like, there's a lot of great women in this film. And I'm sure they all had, you know, things to share. So I'm not suggesting that, uh, well, I, I don't even actually know why this doesn't work, but I, I think it's worth pointing out that there is some kind of sexual dynamic in terms of representation that might, that might explain the misfire.
0: Okay.
1: Anyway, you know, hate me for that. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that there's any problem with, uh, gay men making films that aren't gay films. But but clearly, uh, again, with Gus Van Zandt, he really knew how to do My Own Private Idaho. Like, it's weird. My Own Private Idaho makes... I'm more attracted to Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix in My Own Private Idaho than I am to any of the women in... Uh, even cowgirls get the blues. Even though uh, all of those women who have been, many of them have been in other films, where I do feel like there's a way that I'm like, oh, the camera loves them, like the way the camera loved Keanu and River Phoenix in my own Private Idaho, and then the way it loves Ke- uh, Nicole Kidman uh, just a year later. So I just think it must have been really a bummer when River River died, and they and it, it you know it probably took the took the the heat out of this film. I haven't. I had one other. uh, uh, Did you find it weird that Edward James Olmos agreed to be in this film as basically a non-speaking musician, Mexican musician (laughs) at the barbecue?
0: Well, I'm watching it and I'm like, is that Edward James Olmos? Like it couldn't be because he's not saying or doing anything. It's like he's no different than like an extra. Like that's not even. I guess it's a cameo but or maybe that could be part of the stuff that was cut out perhaps like maybe he was one of the stories that was cut Um, i don't remember it from the book i don't remember there was a (laughs) a story about one of the mexican musicians and he'd already done stand and deliver he was a he was already a star uh, yeah uh but like the other people who are in it like roseanne Barr and like even ken casey like they have dialogue like they have a moment Whereas that he's literally just in the background with this. And if you don't know to look for him, you might not catch him. But who, yeah. Who was he hanging out with (laughs) to be like, I'll be in it. I'll just stand in the back. You know, (laughs) it's like, which of these people is he pals with? Is he like showing up with, uh, like Angie Dickinson and their pals. And she's like, Hey Eddie, you want to be in the scene? It'll be funny. Like, sure. Whatever. Sure. (laughs) Sure." Or in my mind, I hope that he's a good friend of Pat Morita. And him and Pat Morita were just like on a bender. And then there's like, hey, we're filming tomorrow. You want to be in the background? Like, there's just some extras. Like, just show up. It'll be funny. I don't know. (laughs) Who knows? Um, (laughs) That is weird. That that, that is a weird, yeah. I totally forgot about that because it didn't register. Because it was just so strange and just so quick. And I think because she showed up and in my mind, like, oh, I didn't know he's in this movie. I forgot and it was waiting for him to come back and say anything and then he didn't and then i totally forgot about it because it was, it was so insignificant <laughs> yeah that's weird <laughs> hi i'm brian and i'm aj and we have a podcast called the director's wall examining a filmmaker's
1: career film by film first up was m night Shyamalan, then francis
0: Ford coppola who's next is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe by Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform. Do you call yourself a music fan? Are you the one making the playlist for all the parties? Then you've gotta to listen to the Pinch Music Podcast, where we interview musicians, engineers, producers, and music lovers of all types. We even put together playlists for any and all occasions. So if you want to have the Beatles versus Stones debate, pick up some engineering tips, or just discover a new artist, you got to check out the Pinch Music Podcast, all a part of the Paper House Network. Dear listener,
1: if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Do Do you want to talk a little bit about others of his films that you think the world should be aware of or excited about?
0: Yeah, I think Psycho is the big one for me. And that's another one made between two like he made that that's the movie he made right after goodwill hunting so he made goodwill hunting which was definitely his biggest movie at the time uh, it reached ev- like everybody saw that movie it won oscars it was like such a thing it kickstarted the careers of ben affleck and you know matt damon and then he decides to follow it up with a remake of psycho <laughs> which i think is very bold <laughs> and I remember before seeing that, just hearing from everyone like, "What an outrage! How dare you!" Like it's it, like think like talk about adapting a thing that is beloved or adapting a thing that people that have like very much, you know, have strong feelings about like more so than even cowgirls get the blues. You know, a great movie by one of the great filmmakers, and you're going to remake it, and you're going to not have Anthony Perkins but Vince Vaughn, <laughs> and it's in color. <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> and, but What's and maybe this this even cowgirls get the blues was in his head when he made it, but so much like what I think when I watch Psycho, is that this is him sort of commenting on adapting things and and remakes and your version of a thing, and it feels more to me not a remake but like an essay on sort of like what do remakes mean like is this and I think he, he even kind of says through the movie. Should I even be doing this? And like, okay, if I'm gonna just do it, what does this mean? How do I do it? And just like there's something just really like I feel like there's a whole college paper within Gus Van Sant's psycho. There's a lot going on in that movie. It's not just a rehash remake.
1: Oh, I have I have tremendously more respect for psych for his psycho <laughs> than for this. Because first of all, it doesn't you you don't lose the original psycho. And there that is such so clearly a a bold statement, yeah. That is philosophical. It's like it's like the, you know, what's the the painting? This is not a pipe. Like it's one of the. It's a piece of art that makes you ask really big questions about art. Yeah. Which failure? Like when you're doing that, it's not about failure or success in the traditional sense of is it a good movie.
0: But at the time, people didn't understand what he was doing, and they were just yeah, like, what yeah, a hack, what, what a sellout. <laughs> he did this. And the fact that it was him doing a shot, like the, the whole thesis for anyone who hasn't seen it or didn't know, he did a shot-for-shot remake of Secco. Like, dude, we even did the same angles. But because he's not Hitchcock, it's just not going to feel like the same movie. And I find that just kind of a fascinating way to enter in a, a remake. And I think it totally worked. Like, I was so mesmerized by that movie. Um, and I don't know. i yeah. I saw it when it came out, and I was a huge fan. And I was just riding on a high, like a Gus Van Sant high, because I feel like he could do to me do no wrong <laughs> through the entire '90s. Like uh, Drugstore Cowboy is incredible. He's a Gus Van Sant Jr. in that one too. That hey, do you know the do you name. know the
1: Drugstore Cowboy connection to Olympia?
0: Uh, wasn't it have to do with positively Fourth Street? The, yeah, the right. Wynn,
1: who ran Positively 4th Street, was one of the, he was, I think he was one of the characters in it. Uh, actually, I brought, there's an article I'll include in the show notes about the whole background of uh, James Fogle, who wrote the, I think he wrote the novel that the film was built, was based on. And yeah, there's just like this whole weird little Olympia subplot to that <laughs> story, which always made me feel sort of. It just made me feel Olympia cool, as we did in the '90s. <laughs> yeah, and you said that Goodwill Hunting was up till then his most popular movie or most successful movie. I think it it's it probably still is. I mean, I'm trying. Yeah, After no, that, that, was, see, that there was was finding the... Forrester, no. I mean Jerry, Elephant,
0: Milk. I guess Milk would be It was like award popular, <laughs> but like Goodwill Hunting was seen by like people's aunts and uncles and was talked about it like over dinner at parties. It's...
1: I still watch that film like once every 5 years. It's just it's like it's a really great sort of right in the middle kind of film. Yeah. Like it's not a blow you away movie. It's not psycho in terms of a huge statement or even my own private Idaho as a personal statement, but it's just one of the best just like ground zero. This is a movie movies. Yeah. I oh think.
0: yeah. Um, do you, do you think that they actually wrote that script? Cause you've heard the rumors, right? That like Terrence Malick supposedly wrote a bunch of it and, it, like, and they just wanted Ben Affleck and Matt Damon to have that they wrote it because everyone wanted them to succeed. And it's sort of like the rumor. <laughs> I believe
1: I believe they wrote... Something? The, they wrote the script that got Miramax interested in them. That they they were interested in them as young stars on the rise. And they were friends who had a script that had something to it. And then, yeah, I I believe it was doctored. I believe that you know, I I had heard that it was William Goldman. Oh, (laughs) was was one of the right? Like he talks, he sort of he makes a reference to it in one of his books. Like people are are asking, he says, people ask me if I wrote this, and I tell them that if I had, I wouldn't tell them that I did because I took so much money to be quiet about (laughs) it. (laughs) So either he's just being a (laughs) total fucking dick or he's just kind of being dickish about something that everyone in Hollywood knows. Yeah. Um, so I mean yeah, I I I don't think well clearly they're not screenwriters cuz they haven't written anything else until The Last Duel and then that's Nick Nicole Hallof Center. Like yeah. they yeah it doesn't take. I. I don't think it takes anything. I don't it makes them evil. I don't think it takes anything away from them. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I don't believe that that movie would be what I'm talking about. This ground zero, like it. It feels like Butch Cassidy and Sundance in the same kind of way. Of like, there's, there's just everything, every point, everything that a movie can do to keep you engaged in the moviness of it. It's doing all the way through. Yeah. And, like there's just yeah. so many great moments in Goodwill Hunting. Oh,
0: yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, do you like? Have you seen any of the kind of the more artier Gus Van Sant stuff that he did after Seiko, like Jerry and Elephant and Last Days and Paranoid Park, where he got really into Bellator and these long takes and it was more abstract and there's not a lot of you know like. Do you have you seen those?
1: I have them all in my queue, and I always <laughs> skip over
0: them. <laughs> You're like uh some I'm of them are kind of i'm not into last days today maybe maybe tomorrow <laughs> jerry is great jerry is in a, a really really good movie and that one i think it's all improvised like the script is credited to casey affleck and matt damon and gus van sant but i think they just kind of went out in the desert and improvised a, this story and that and if like talk about cinematic like that movie that will give you what you want that, that you didn't get from even cowgirls like that is just like beautiful shots amazing well-composed uh um <clears throat> you know it's just it's a, it's an incredible looking movie like seeing that in the theater was fantastic and elephant's the same thing it's just, it just gets very conceptual and really smart last days i don't know about i actually you know as much as i love him and said that i will defend anything i walked out of that movie i didn't even i saw that in the theater and it's one of the few there's like five movies in my life that i've walked out of and that was one of them <laughs> So I still haven't quite given it its due. Maybe I, I I should actually sit down and and watch it. But I think in the time I just was not wanting to sit through that movie because it's a hard one. It's a it's a hard movie to get involved in um, because of the top because of the subject matter. No, it's just the way it's done. It just I wasn't ready because I think I went in thinking, oh, this is a movie about the last days of Kurt Cobain. Like how interesting. And then the way it's done. Because it's kind of, because it's sort of in the style that he did with Elephant and Jerry, which is uh, kind of more of a sitting back into sort of like, it's not really emotional. You're kind of just more a a spectator viewing these events go on. And I feel last days to me needed more of like maybe some emotion in there. And I wasn't ready for like, oh, this is going to be another one of this, like follow people around kind of at a distance sort of thing. Um, I need to watch it again. I, I really didn't give it a chance, but. At the time, I didn't want to. <laughs> no, but maybe I, you could have
1: used a KD Lang soundtrack.
0: <laughs> but I highly recommend Jerry and Elephant. Like, an, an Elephant, also a remake. But to- that one is totally different from the original. And it works as its own thing. He definitely put his own stamp on that, for sure. Um, so, it's, I don't know, it's... He, I feel he just keeps making interesting things. Did you want have you seen um don't worry he won't get far on foot the more recent one he did with Joaquin Phoenix? I haven't seen that one.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I did see that. I didn't even put it together as being a Gus Van Sant <laughs> film. Oh no, you no, know that's not the one. What's the other one where where uh, Joaquin Phoenix plays a hitman? Uh And we know. never see and we never see his We never see the murders. Uh, Hold on a second. Oh yes, I know why I thought they were the same thing because it was—it's you were never really here. Oh yeah, right—the year before, and they—they both sound like very similar titles. (laughs) You were—you were never really here, but don't worry, he won't get
0: far on foot. (laughs) He's just an irrational man, (laughs) or a joker. or a sister's brother
1: <laughs>
0: um <laughs> yeah but
1: uh <laughs> so no i haven't seen that one yeah Is it, it looks
0: i haven't seen it but okay. i feel like the fact that it's a phoenix again working with a van sant like that that sounds interesting i'll watch it um yeah i don't know i i I'm always glad when we agree on movies, like I'm nervous when I'm like nothing but trouble and then you end up really liking it. But I'm also fine if we don't agree. That's okay. <laughs> I know that I'm a person alone. My love of even cowgirls get the blues. It's, it's the weight that I have to carry with me wherever. And I, and I think the thing that's most important, and this is for anyone, don't lie about those things. Be, be proud of the movies. If you're the only one who likes it, let everyone know and you may have to put up a fight but it's worth it if you really like it don't be don't have shame
1: (laughs) and what i would say is read the books check out the tom robbins novels they're they are excellent is this his best book no i don't think it's only his second one and I feel like he really hits his stride later after uh, Jitterbug Perfume when he gets into Still Life. That's where I, I where I jumped on with Still Life with Woodpecker. And um, yeah, I, I think, like I said, uh, the the Fierce Invalids book, that's also great. But I don't think I don't think there's a wrong way to enter. It's not like he's one of those guys who's written 50 books. I think he's got like eight or nine and they if you if you like the tone then you're gonna like all of them I think time passes okay we're just cutting in here uh, at the end because there's a couple of corrections and we need to make an, a, a little apology and then we'll tell you what's coming <laughs> up uh, next week so first of all let me apologize to you Brian for the corrections I'm about to make. <laughs> in the in the preceding episode you, you referred to the author of one flew over the cuckoo's nest several times who is a who appears in even cowgirls get the blues yeah. his name is Ken Kesey i think you've been, oh, saying not Ken Ken, Ken, Casey. Ken Kesey i didn't want to inter- interrupt you at the time you were you're riffing you would be surprised because that that's the other thing i want to <laughs> apologize about is just what how annoying i've been through this episode but we'll get to that and continuing that anno- annoyance i think you called her Donna Delany uh, Dana Delaney is the actress who's in
0: Exit to Eden. Exit to Eden, yeah.
1: Dana Delaney from that great Vietnam show. I can't remember the names of Palm uh, China, China Beach, Palm Beach story. Chi- no, yeah, <laughs> no, it's a different thing. Yes, China Beach. Uh, so yes, and I, I really do. I got to say, I uh, I I have to listen back to these episodes because I do edit them. <laughs> And <clears throat> we're supposed to be extremely positive, and I, I was unable to be even moderately positive in this episode. So I, I, I apologize. I'm, I'm doing my best. I was trying to be positive for the Tom Robbins fans out there.
0: Yeah, uh, you're positive in your way. Yeah, I am. Uh, yeah, so I. Uh, I, I think. I, I, oh, go on. I think Gus Van Sant will will be able to sleep soundly tonight now that you've po- apologized. Well, yeah. <laughs>
1: I'm not really apologizing to him. I still hold him accountable for this film, but I'm apologizing to the listeners. So, uh, yes. So, uh, and maybe one of these days we'll really get to the bottom of this. Of our, uh, I don't think it's really a disagreement, but we have a different, definitely a different point of view on this adaptation game, and I'm sure it will come up again. Uh, in general, I, I in general, I'm pr- I'm in agreement with you, and I think that you are with me because when I when people have made films about things that you're very knowledgeable about, I know that you can be just as judgmental of them, and I almost True. feel like that's the dynamic: is the more you know about the source material for any movie, the more likely you are to be hostile to that movie. Yeah, because a
0: part of it too is sort of like, well, I could have done better. Because I know more and I know how to do it right. <laughs> it's
1: not even I could have done better. It's just, uh, it's just, it's just really like when you know that you've seen adaptations of things that you were into, and there's a good feeling that comes from watching a really well-made Elmore Leonard film, and you're like, yeah, Oof, yeah, God. True. they And when they don't get the Elmore Leonard tone, you're like, oh, that's okay, you know. Uh, anyway. Well, like I said, we'll have many other opportunities to dig into that. But let's tell folks what is coming up next week, Brian.
0: Yeah, uh, we are starting an episode that's not necessarily about a, a specific movie, but you're talking to a filmmaker about many movies.
1: Yes, I'm going to be talking with a regular contributor to the show, Professor Skinner Myers. And... We're basically talking about how the world is wrong about black cinema. And Skinner has a a very unique take on this, uh, very insightful. I think I really encourage people to check it out and have their perception of black cinema expanded. And, yeah, that's what we'll be getting into Great. next week. And if you like to write to us or get in touch with us about this week's episode or anything else, you can reach us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com via email. You can find us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast, on Twitter at worldiswrongpod, and on our website at www.theworldiswrongpodcast.com, where you can find the web page about this episode with lots of pictures and links and all kinds of cool <laughs> stuff and um, I guess I you know and I'm, I'm gonna tell you something I tell you every week but this is something that Sissy Hankshaw and the ladies of the Rubber Rose Ranch uh, know very well which is that wherever you are the world is wrong and it's probably wrong about you So the Countess dispatched Sissy out west for her first modeling assignment in years, but not before warning her to keep her distance from those nasty and uppity cowgirls who worked his so-called ranch. He also insisted that she avoid any contact with the alleged holy man who lived on the ridge above the rubber rose. Known as the Chink, though apparently he was Japanese-American, he appeared to be one of those berry-picking moon howlers, the kind of old kumquat who might fuck a snake and then write a little poem about it. Usually, she preferred to hitchhike without a fixed destination, hitching for hitching's sake, for freedom and movement, and that alone. But something was pulling her to the rubber rose,
0: something softer than money and stranger than work.
1: Someday, if that sissy Hangshaw ever shows up here, I'm gonna teach her how to hypnotize a chicken. Did you know chickens are the easiest critters on earth to hypnotize? You just twirl a chicken in the air 20 times, it's yours forever. How exciting.
0: She means,
1: are you going to go see the chink? Well, I may, I may not. But seeing him's not my main objective
0: here. You know, that, that's good, because, you know, he, he might not see you. I mean, we drove all the way from Minneapolis, and the crazy bastard tried to stone us to death.
1: Yeah, it bummed me out. I thought he was a master. But he's nothing but a dirty old mountain man. He took out his wanker and, and shook it at <laughs> Barbara. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't go up there if I were you. I wouldn't, OK? Bye-bye.
0: Radio 8 Ball!
1: Andros here. Shit. When I'm not co hosting the World Is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8 Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes
0: App Store. Show.